you've probably heard the expression, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Have you heard of that? Do you, do you affirm its general truth? We can see this play out in fictional storylines like Marvel's Avengers in Infinity War and in Endgame. The center stage to the story is a character named Thanos who seeks to find the Infinity Stones to compile them and give him ultimate power in the the universe and then to eliminate somewhat randomly of course, he's not one of the ones eliminated, so it's definitely somewhat random, to eliminate randomly half of the universe's population. After accomplishing his ultimate mission, he destroys the, the stones, declaring the universe needed correction. Beyond that, they only serve uh, to, uh, they serve no purpose beyond temptation. Now, that's the plot of a comic series, so it really matters very little. But we've seen evidence of this same corruption that power provides in world leaders like Hitler or Stalin, Mussolini, and others, mercilessly murdering people who were in the way of their conquests mercilessly eliminating those who didn't meet their criteria as worthy humans. The seeds of that mercilessness come from within the corrupt human heart of mankind. These examples are evidence of that in the extreme. The typical human response is not to simply eliminate people because they don't meet our criteria, but the seeds of that corruption are within every human heart. This morning, we will again be amazed as we see our all-powerful Savior use His power not for his own agenda, but as part of his mission to provide ultimate redemption. This Jesus that we read about, and this Jesus that we have tasted and come to know, does not see the outliers of society as pests to be eliminated, but as people in need of His abundant mercy. At the end of chapter 4, we move from one scene that was initially distressing that ultimately led to exhilaration as Jesus took a child from death's door and made them well. That's what we leave in chapter 4. Then we come into chapter 5, and we meet the distress 
of a man who has 38 years longed to be able to move and to care for himself. We, we meet him in that distress, and as the chapter unfolds, we will move from distress to exhilaration for this hopeless man and this helpless man met the most powerful yet merciful person that this world has ever seen. And interestingly, this scenario takes place in a place called Bethesda, which is aptly named House of Outpouring or House of Mercy. And so as we enter into chapter 5, remembering who our Savior is, getting a little taste for this context, we're about to see in these verses an outpouring of mercy in this scene that was first an outpouring of dealing with this man's physical need that he had been so desperate to have resolved, but ultimately offering both to him in that day and us in our day, a mercy that is far greater than that of being able to walk on our feet and move around and care for our physical well-being. Verse 1 indicates that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Because anytime you go to Jerusalem, you're going up. And it was for a feast day. So take a look at verse 1 of John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's going up to Jerusalem. You can think about it kind of like this. If you went to Orlando and you wanted to go to some of the theme parks in Orlando, you can pull that one down for just a second. We'll get to that in a moment. If you wanted to go to one of the theme parks in Orlando, you would go online and you'd say, all right, undercover tourist, show me the crowd calendar. I want to make sure I go to the right theme park at the right day. I want to find the green day, not the yellow day, not the red day. Because red crowd, crowd calendars means... You're not doing anything when you're there. It's, it's torture. So we always find the green crowd calendar days. And of course, that means torture. At any rate, on this day, he's up in Jerusalem on the feast. It is a red crowd calendar day. There's no freedom of movement. There is a mass of people. This is a high visibility event. And the religious leaders are out in force. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So now we can have that picture up here. You probably can't even see it. Can you even see that I have red circles on there? You probably can't even see that. I wish that you could. It would have been awesome if you could see that. <laughs> the highest red circle, if you could have seen it, is the pool of Bethesda. The middle red circle is the sheep gate, and right below that red circle is the temple area. Um, the reason I point this out is where, where this scene takes place is just outside of that temple mount area through just one passageway. They, they, they travel from that pool of Bethesda into the temple area, and that would have been helpful information for you. Hopefully you have at least the gist of it that it's nearby. The scene that we're seeing is nearby the temple. Verse, uh, the end of verse 2 points out the fact that there are these roofed colonnades, five roofs. 
This is where those that were infirmed or uh, unable, disabled, handicapped would be able to either sit or lie on their mat under the cover of uh, a, a little bit of uh, help from the inclement weather. So we get into verses 3 and 4. It says, In these roofed colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now some of your versions go on to explain the tradition that is that uh, once in a while an angel would stir these waters up and the first person to step into those waters would be healed. Now my ESV doesn't have that. A number of other versions don't have that and some others do have that. The content of those verses is attested to in verse 7. So whether you have them in verse 3 and 4, or whether you have it in verse 7, the information is there. Just as a little side note, very important, you're going to be finding in your, some of our modern translations that there'll be some skipping of, from one verse to another. You think, hey, what, what just happened here? Uh, normally we don't go from 21 to 22 in our passages. Know this, in, in the mainline versions from the King James to New King James, the New American Standard Version, the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, all those mainline conservative Bibles, all of the major doctrines are attested to. Anytime there's some kind of a small discrepancy, which is very minor, it never impacts doctrine. So you don't really have to stress yourself about it. If you have other questions about those kinds of doctrinal uh, translation issues, Pastor Jeff and I would be glad to talk with you uh, privately on that. Here we have the setting. We have the, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed hanging out underneath these roofed colonnades. And now we're introduced to a particular man in verse 5. One man was there. Let me ask you a question. How many men were there? A lot of men. But we're going to talk about one man. Because he mattered. One man was there who had been paralyzed or an invalid for 38 years. This man had been completely helpless. The inclusion of this 38 years detail helps us to see the helplessness, hopelessness, and concreteness of what is being discussed and this man's situation. He's sitting or lying on his mat at this pool for days on end, hoping, hoping something, please, can something change my situation? This is, I'm sick and tired of this. And then we come to verse 6. And verse 6 kind of throws me for a loop. <laughs> verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he was, had been already there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus saw him and he knew. What did Jesus know in that moment? The text tells us that Jesus knew He had been there for a long time. And He knew He was desperate. And He says, do you, do you want to be whole? Nah, I'm good. I'm fine. 
I, I like hanging out by the pool, unable to wash myself. Unable to get food for myself. Thanks anyway. Have a good day. And the man, that's not his response. <laughs> You're not surprised. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and then the water is stirred up and while I'm going down, another steps in before me. I, I, can't, I can't do it. The man states his ambition, but he's helpless. Maybe this implies, maybe you could hang out here with me. Sit by my side. So when it stirs, you can bring me in the water. Maybe I'll be the first one because you're here to help me. Maybe you can help me. Maybe there's an implication there. But then we have this transition. A provision of physical life is about to take place. A trans, like a, an absolute provision that would rock this man's world. 38 years in the waiting... But it's just the tip of the iceberg for what Jesus wants to offer this man. Like it's the tip of the iceberg for what Jesus wants to offer us and our neighbors and our children and our children's children to the second and third, fourth and fifth generations. God has something way better and it's about to be teased out in this context. Verse 8, with the utterance of three succinct commands. We have an unbelievable transition. Verse verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus issues forth with His powerful, life-giving voice, three succinct commands. First, get up. Second, take up your mat. Your straw mat. Take it up and then be walking about. He just spoke the words. And this man who could not walk, who could not move for himself, stands up, grabs his bed, and starts walking. Verse 9 says, at once. The word in the Greek is eutheos, immediately, at once, immediately. As soon as Jesus uttered those words, the man got up, picked up his mat, starts walking about. The the man in verse 9, he was healed. He was made whole. He was made sound. Listen to this statement by one commentator. Just as the 38 years prove the gravity of the disease... So the carrying of the bed and the walking prove the completeness of the cure. At the end of verse 9, we have this statement, now that day was the Sabbath. High vis, high visibility, red on the crowd calendar. The Pharisees and the rulers are out in force. And it's the Sabbath. Multiply it. Now we're really high alert. Next week, we're going to dig in to this discussion on the Sabbath. It's a significant concept in this passage for many scenarios. We don't have time to deal with it. Right now, we're focusing in on the wholeness of this man. Next week, we'll talk about the implications with regard to the Sabbath. Verse 10, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath! 
and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The Jews, of course, were much more interested in the violation of their extrapolation of the Sabbath laws than this man's amazing, miraculous recovery from 38 years of paralysis and atrophy. Hey, you're not supposed to carry around your straw mat. That's carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Forget about the fact you didn't care about him before then. You never lifted a finger to get him into the water or to help him. You probably didn't bring him a drink. You probably never brought him some meat or something to eat. Nothing. You could care less about him. What you care about is your sensibilities about how the Sabbath day ought to be. Ain't that typical. Verse 11. But he answered them, The man who healed me That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's not my fault, man. (laughs) By the way, you're talking about the Sabbath day. I'm talking about being healed. Might be two different things. The guy who healed me told me to do it. What else am I supposed to do? Verse 12. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They didn't get the hint. What should the hint have been for them? I once was lamed and now I walk. I once was ill and now I'm well. But not for them. There are much more important things to worry about than whether you can move about or not. Violate our laws. That is a real problem. Who is this Sabbath violator? Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. This man was so impressed by what had happened to him, he didn't say, oh, by the way, what's your name? You must be something special! Who are you? None of that. Nothing. The man was so impressed, he forgot to ask Jesus who he was. But you know, this fact makes this even more awesome. Jesus simply healed him regardless of what the man thought about Jesus, regardless of what the man thought about his intentions or his faith or anything. It had nothing to do with this man's initiative. It was all about Jesus and His ability to pour out mercy, abundant mercy in the deepest distress of a person's life. It had nothing to do with Him. It was Jesus seeing helplessness And it provided Jesus with an opportunity to offer this man and others something way better. Something greater than physical wellness. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. That is also significant. It's not like the guy didn't know who he was and was like, oh, I've got to find him. Let me find Jesus. Let me find this guy that healed me. No, nope. Jesus found him in the temple just a little while later. We don't know the interval of time. And Jesus said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
This is where Jesus starts to introduce a way better uh, provision. It says, see, ide in the Greek, behold, behold, you are well or you are whole. See, here you are, you've been pining and desirous and hopeful for healing for 38 years. See, you're well. This is good. This is a good day. See what's happened? You're alive. You're well. You had hoped for this moment for 38 years, and here it is. But essentially, Jesus says, we haven't dealt with a far greater sickness that you have. We've only dealt with something that is very temporary because you are going to come again, sir, to a day when you can't walk again. You're going to come again to a day when you can't do anything for yourself again. We have a far more significant matter to deal with. There's another type of wholeness you still need. And Jesus' ensuing conversation, likely with this man in the audience, will unveil this deeper, fuller, longer-lasting wholeness. And He introduces it. He sparks his attention by saying, stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. Stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. And I want to ask you a question. I want you to think think about it for a moment. What is worse than lying on a mat day after day unable to care for yourself? I propose to you that there's probably not an earthly disease that's going to meet that description. I don't believe that Jesus is threatening this man that He's going to be waiting. I can't wait until you violate one more of the laws and I'm going to come and inflict you again with something worse. I don't think that's the the way that Jesus is speaking here. He's, He's actually inducing something way better than you better not sin again or you're going to be lamer than you once were. Jesus is implying that this man's sin, like all of ours, has devastating consequences much worse than 38 years of paralysis. Now, I don't, again, I I don't want to be like super dogmatic when we come to verse 15. I'm not really sure exactly what's what this man is doing here in verse 15, but let's read it and then talk about a couple of possibilities. Verse 15: the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So there are a couple of ways you can look at this, interpret it, think about it, of what's happening here. The man goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Is he simply throwing Jesus under the bus, covering his own hide? Oh, remember you were looking for, for the guy that told me to stop walking around, carrying my bed on the Sabbath? It was Jesus. You can look at it that way. Or, possible you can look at it this way you keep asking about the one who told me to violate the sabbath but i keep emphasizing that it was this man jesus who healed me either way it's not the essence of the account god has purposed for this encounter for this man god purposed this encounter for the religious leaders for the sake of this man for the audience that's there And honestly, God has purposed this scenario had long before the world began, God had purposed the scenario that you and I 
would also, with the audience of that day, see the awesome nature of our Savior and His provision of life for us. So we're going to take a moment here. I want you to just think with me. I'm going to try to wrap this up in the, in the coming moments here. But Jesus simply spoke some words. What did Jesus do to heal this man? In other times, He'll, he'll touch someone. At other times, He'll you know, put some spittle on the ground and wipe it on their eyes. There's, there's a lot of times that Jesus has some contact. In this particular scenario, He just spoke some words. Now, we have seen from the beginning of the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Word. That His Word is a powerful Word. It's through that Word that the worlds were created. And then in chapter 1 and verse 4, we see that this Word, and in this Word, there is life. Because He is life. Later in this same account, John 5, Jesus is going to reveal more about His words or His voice. Look at verse 24. John 5 In verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Hear my word and believe, and you will have more than wholeness of your limbs. You can have from Me, through My Word, what? Eternal life. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. I speak the Word, you get up. I speak the Word, you take up your mat. I speak the Word, you walk about. I utter words and your physical life comes. But I have something better for you. When I speak the Word and you believe the Word, I give you eternal life which lasts much longer than your limbs will ever last. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear what? The voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will what? Live. Voice. He speaks. Do you want to be well? Get up! And he gets up. I utter my voice. The words come forth. You believe. And guess what happens? Eternal life. Voice. Life. Listen. Believe. Life. This is what he offers. So much better than being able to walk around for a few years before you can walk no longer. Look down a little further. How powerful is this voice of Jesus? Look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the real matter at hand. Jesus' voice can awaken the dead. We need for Him to provide more than physical life. We need something better. Look a little further in the text. 
Look at verses 37 and following. John 5, 37. The Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His Word abiding in you. For you do not believe the One whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness, speak forth, they voice their words. They articulate. They, they proclaim. They bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have what? Life. This man's physical life, much better. But that was not his biggest problem. And Jesus is letting him know both by His interaction with him and the ensuing conversation That He needs more than physical life. He needs spiritual life. This same voice that caused the paralyzed man to get up is the voice of the Son of God. He spoke the world into existence. Psalm 33, 6-9 are capturing that expression. He sustains the universe by the Word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 tells us of this. His voice also, His proclamation will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Remember He says, Behold, I make all things new. And it is that same voice that is right now, day after day, making new creations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says that Uh, Behold, all things have been made new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things, old things have been passed away, all things have been made new. How does that come? It comes from the Word of God that makes us alive. In place, in a place filled with infirmity, Bethsaida, Bethesda, excuse me, Bethesda, in a in a place filled with infirmities of all kinds, known as the house of outpouring or the house of mercy, this paralyzed man met the Lord of mercy. He needed mercy and he met the merciful one. This man experienced mercy from the most powerful person to ever walk the face of the earth. The mercy that Jesus offered to him first provided physical wholeness and beyond that offered eternal wholeness, forgiveness, and life from the God of all mercies. Verse 40 of this chapter where Jesus confronts the religious leaders and He says, you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. You refuse My offer of giving you life that will fill you like He gave to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Life that will, will spring you up physically, but better, spring you up eternally. Real, eternal life. The question is, will you come to Him that you might have life? 
Will you receive from Jesus the eternal life that He offers through His Word? Through the power of His voice, He offers life. Do you want to be whole forever? That's a real question. The word means whole. That was Jesus' question back in verse 6. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be whole? Of course, no one wants to limp. No one wants to be in pain. No one wants infirmity. No one wants to not see. No one wants to not hear. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus offers. Do you want to be whole forever? To spend an eternity of wellness and peace and joy in the presence of God forever. This is what Jesus offers. This is what Jesus came to do. Remember from Matthew one twenty one. It's on your Christmas cards. You shall call His name Jesus for He shall save His people from their sin. This is what He came to do. And in every scene we see Him dealing with people physically, mercifully, an outpouring of mercy, but ultimately, the physical was just to lead them to understand that He had something way better to offer them like He still offers to us today. Do you want to be made well forever? Come to Him. He will give you life. Let's pray. Our good, faithful, merciful, redeeming God, thank You. Thank You that we have the privilege of reading the truth of Your Word. That You have preserved these truths for us. That we might taste and see that You are gracious and merciful and You have everything we need. Thank You for Jesus that He lived for us and that He died for us and that You raised Him from the grave, raised Him from the dead for our justification that we too would have life and have it abundantly because of Your good, gracious hand. Father, You know what each person in this room needs. Do Your work. We trust You. May we believe. May we hear Your Word and believe. In Jesus' name, Amen.